Hello, it's Julie Bindle. I'm sorry it's been a while, but I've been travelling and one of my trips was to Toronto, Canada, where I did a fascinating interview with Dr. Kenneth Ken Zucker, who is the former head of a youth gender identity clinic at Canada's largest mental health centre. And in 2018, he was given a large payoff. He tells us really eloquently about what led up to him being discredited and kicked out of his job. And also, of course, then accused widely by crazed trans activists of being a bigot, a Nazi, the usual. And Zucker had led the clinic for 35 years. And he was accused of practising conversion therapy because what he really wanted to do when he saw these young people was explore first and foremost if and how they could be encouraged and enabled to live happily within their own skin and perhaps not undergo gender reassignment, surgery and hormonal intervention. Here's Ken Zucker. I'll start by saying that over the years, local, quote, activists, including clinicians, but not only clinicians, didn't like our clinic. And they might say something about it. So there were mutterings and whisperings and that kind of thing. Yeah. And these are people who never, ever contacted me directly or other senior people, let's say, in the clinic. What are you guys actually doing there? Um, And that's in contrast, I would say, to the fact that over the years, many professionals from around the world who were interested in gender dysphoria would come and visit the clinic and see what kinds of assessments we do did and therapy and wanting to know about the research we were doing. And I would say that I think pretty much everybody who would visit the clinic liked it. So my views over the years was when people would make these ridiculous statements in the media or elsewhere say fuck them like why should I reach out to them when they're making these ridiculous accusations about the clinic what kind of accusations well I think that main criticism that people made about our clinic was our our approach to prepubertal children that our therapeutic approach as a, let's call it, first line of treatment was to see whether or not one could help a kid feel more comfortable with a gender that matched their birth sex so they would be less likely to go down a road of social transition and biomedical treatment with all of the complexities that having to take hormones for the rest of your life and surgery entail. And I would say people didn't like that. And so eventually we were tagged with, they're doing conversion therapy. 
I think they were less able to criticize what we were doing with adolescence because our therapeutic approach with adolescence at that time, going back many years, was that for some adolescents, we did recommend hormonal suppression for some of the kids, not all of them. And in fact, we were the first clinic in North America to start recommending puberty blockers in selected cases, just like the Dutch were, because I'm very close with a lot of the Dutch and I've published with them. So So you were very radical, in fact. Well, at the time, I mean, now, I mean, the clinical landscape has changed so much when it comes to adolescence. And we were very mindful of change in the clinical presentation of so many adolescents going back to the mid-2000s, although we didn't have a label for it, like Lisa Littman labeled rapid onset gender dysphoria in 2018. Mm. But for sure, we were absolutely aware that we were starting to see a lot of adolescents, mainly females, who just were not like the ones we were seeing in the old days. Um, If we stick with adolescents for the moment, why did we start to recommend hormonal suppression for some kids circa 1999-2000, for a few reasons. First of all, I worked with a child psychiatrist for many years, Sue Bradley. We worked together for like 40 years. And if Sue was anything, she was a practical person with many interests. And when we saw adolescents in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, I think our perspective, and we didn't see a lot of them, Back then, we always saw more children than adolescents. We didn't start to see more adolescents than children until the late 2000s. I think our perspective was that the majority of the adolescents we were seeing had many mental health issues, which in its own right meant that they were complicated kids to do any kind of therapeutic work with. But also the feeling that they're gender identity was pretty locked in and that even if the kid wanted to resolve their gender dysphoria, there wasn't a lot of compelling evidence that there was a therapeutic approach that would help them do that. Back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, in terms of hormones, all you could do is hold them until they turned 18 and then you could refer them to an adult gender identity clinic or to an endocrinologist. And in fact, the endocrinologist who we worked with around blockers, a guy named Jerry Bain, B-A-I-N, he was an adult endocrinologist, but he was a very like liberal, humanistic type guy. And he saw a lot of adult transsexuals. And back in the 90s, early 2000s, when we would talk to pediatric endocrinologists, they wanted nothing to do with these kids back then, which was funny, because now a lot of them are cheerleaders. And why did they not want anything to well, do? They would say, why would you do that to a normal body? So they thought it was crazy. And were you concerned about 
the lack of evidence around any future effects from puberty blockers at that stage? Was there much around? Not particularly. First of all, I'm a psychologist. Did I back in the day, or did Sue back in the day, like, read carefully about are there things one has to worry about in terms of adverse side effects? Not a hell of a lot comes to mind, and presumably Bain, the endocrinologist who we were sending these kids to, wasn't concerned. And the main argument back then was, well, they are reversible. So if you change your mind, you stop and puberty kicks up again. And over the years, we certainly did have some patients who started on blockers and then they changed their minds and they stopped and puberty started up again. But my point back then was, why did we go with the blockers? It was along the lines of, this is the best, so to speak, we have to offer these kids. Now, we know that if we accelerate up to 2023 for a minute, because there is so much more heterogeneity in the clinical presentation, I think one has to be even more cautious in deciding if you did want to recommend hormonal suppression, certainly one size doesn't fit all. So if you read the original Dutch model, as it's come to be known, one of their criteria was a lifelong history of, you know, gender dysphoria. Well, if you're seeing a 13-year-old who has just disclosed to their parents in the last three months that they're trans and there's no childhood history of gender dysphoria, that's not lifelong. Now, I think I'll make a sort of bold statement. My guess is that a lot of clinicians and clinics out there do not use the original Dutch model very carefully. I'm not persuaded that, in general, the so-called gender-affirming clinics view as something being important how long a kid has had gender dysphoria. So I think they would be as likely to recommend hormonal suppression for a kid who has just started to share things. So the rapid onset diagnosis. I don't think they take it very seriously. Yeah. And in part, it's... I think related to deep structure, philosophical differences in how one conceptualizes gender dysphoria. So if, let's say, you're an essentialist or uh, a clinician who is just saying that I'm following the child's lead and if they say this is who they are, then... I accept it with no questioning. I think it's a model that I have a lot of trouble with, but I'm not, I don't think there's a lot of evidence of discrimination in terms of deciding who should, who are the better candidates for biomedical treatment. In the paper we published in 2011 on our sample, it was interesting because the percentage of kids that we recommended it, doesn't mean they all went on it, was pretty similar to the Dutch, around two-thirds of the cases. And 
One of the things the Dutch always talk about, at least back in the day, was that a kid has to be mentally stable, so to speak. But if you actually read, to be free of having mental health issues, if you actually read like some of their early papers on the mental health of kids, they recommended blockers for versus those where they delayed it. It's not always clear if one could actually tell the difference from reading their vignettes like, oh, this is a kid you clearly would delay it. Here's a kid where you would go with it. So, But I, I don't think people really followed the Dutch model particularly carefully other than to give blockers. I have worked with a number of cases where the kids have an incredible number of mental health issues that affects their day-to-day life where one could say, well, these are kids where you really may want to say to the kid, you really need to get more stable before we're going to put you on hormones. But they're put on hormones. So if you're going to give them to kids like that, you'll give them to anybody. Right. But going back to the original question, so we, the critique was more, I think, that we were not affirming enough of little kids. By the mid, circa 2015, social transition of prepubertal kids, a.k.a. jazz Jenning types, yeah. was becoming more common. And I would have to say that for me, I have always had a hard time thinking about that as a first-line therapeutic approach. And I've probably seen, I'm going to say now, three dozen prepubertal children where before I actually saw them or maybe while I was seeing them, a social transition was implemented, either the parents doing it on their own maybe on the advice of somebody else. And as I think about those cases, I think the reasons parents do it is varied. In some cases, I think it's related to really messy mech factors going on with the parents. I think it's almost a kind of innocence that they can see that their kid solves a number of immediate problems, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure. So I think what leads to it is quite variable. But in theory, my preference would always be let's spend some time exploring things before one embarks on this particular pathway. Because I think once you embark on it, it's pretty hard to shift the pathway. Well, and you know the figures from the Tavistock JIDS, which is that 98% of those young people that are prescribed puberty blockers go on to cross-sex hormones. And we're just looking now at new figures that coming out of interest in the CAS report about how socially transitioning children, prepubescent children, usually leads to a demand for puberty blockers. So it's all very connected, isn't it, on that trajectory? Yeah, well, 
two things. One is I always try to make a distinction in talking about pathways between child samples and adolescent samples because I think a lot of parents read things about follow-up studies of children and assume they would apply to adolescents. We can come back to that maybe. But yeah, I mean, I started to write a few years ago that social transition prior to puberty is not a neutral act. It's a type of psychosocial treatment. I think I was one of the first people to make that point explicit in mm-hmm. print, although yes. I don't think Cass gave were, me any credit for that. You were the first person. But, uh, you know, Christina Olson, who's a psychologist in the States, has been following a sample of prepubertal kids who've socially transitioned, not clinic-based cases, but from meetings for families of trans kids, Facebook, snowball sampling, blah, blah, blah. She published a paper last year in pediatrics, short-term follow-up of her kids, so they're now young adolescents. 95% had persisted in the social transition, which is so different from the older follow-up studies of little kids. So I think Right now, the evidence certainly supports the idea that if a kid socially transitions prior to puberty, the odds that they may shift is not high. I've had some parents of little kids over the years email me where the parents supported a social transition. They had second thoughts, and then the kid detransitioned before even reaching puberty, so... It does happen. Going back to 2015, so this is, I think, a vulnerability factor. So Sue Bradley, who I'd been worked with for almost 40 years, had retired from the clinic a couple years prior. Sue was a senior figure in child psychiatry in Toronto. She was the psychiatrist-in-chief at the Hospital for Sick Children in the Division of Child Psychiatry for like 12 years. She was replaced eventually by a much more junior psychiatrist with no particular status. Secondly, she was young. Secondly, my administrative boss in the child program, who had been my administrative boss since 1985, had stepped down from that position. So he was replaced by a guy who quite liked me until the shit hit the fan. At one point, he said, I was one of the two stars in the program. Then there was another administrator who'd been around for a long time who hated me and I hated her. And then there was a third administrator who I'll call the narcissist who was constantly wanting to be politically correct about one thing or another. So without Bradley around and without my administrative boss of like like almost 30 years, I think that put me in a vulnerable position. The local activists came and they said, okay, we're going to do this external review. 
I think if Bradley was still around and if my former administrative boss had been around when they came to complain, nothing would have happened. Right. They would have been told to fuck off. Right. All roads were open, basically, for them to come for you. And the ideologues have been pushing about you hadn't been using a suitably affirmative model that you had occasionally questioned whether or not talking therapy would be appropriate. Yeah. So it was also becoming unpleasant in the clinic in general, even before the external review, because we were now getting so many referrals and we didn't have a lot of staffing and I'm not sure there would have been at the time any interest in increasing staffing. And the situation in many clinics now has become crazy, right? Like supposedly the clinic at SickKids in Toronto, which basically approves kids for hormones, has a waiting list of like 18 months to two years. And did this explosion coincide with a lot of noise being made from trans activists and no i just think it's what like the dutch have waiting lists of like right two plus years the gids once it became this national center of excellence which made it easier to refer kids from anywhere in the uk all of a sudden they have like what two to three thousand kids on a waiting list mm. even with a staff of like 70 it's a lineup going out to heathrow yeah became unviable but as i said i think that as i think about it retrospectively maybe things would have been different if certain people were still in play in the clinic and administratively but once the review happened I think we were of two minds, maybe we'll be hit with some misdemeanors or maybe it's just a setup and an excuse to close the clinic. And so the review happened over a course of a couple of days in July of 2015. We were promised by one of the administrators, oh, you'll get to see the review, but they never let us see it right? until the day of. And they also put it up on line that afternoon didn't they despite you saying there are so many errors and defamatory accusations yeah yeah i'm glad they did put it online because that enabled jesse single to see it and led to his investigation and but yeah it was pretty intense because when i saw the remark that i called a patient a hairy little vermin who i never saw And it was so extreme, it was so unlikely. And had they perhaps toned down that remark, it would have carried more traction. But this was so clearly bonkers. Yeah. Well, looking at the review, I, I noted, for example, that one of the local activists, with the permission of the external reviewers, put out an advertisement asking for survivors of the gender clinic to come forward right so that they would say yeah sure do that that's a very objective yeah i mean when we had the external review i had to really push them to actually meet with parents of kids we had seen and they grudgingly agreed 
to do that. Gave each parent like five minutes at most. But I had found out long after the fact of the review that one of the external reviewers has a transgender child of their own. What I don't know is, was that the case before the external review or after? But if it was before, one could certainly raise a question that, is this not a conflict of interest? It's also what we found in the media, working as journalists, where section editors and senior um, people within the press have a trans-identified child and they are commissioning all kinds of pro-trans ideology with very little fact-checking. And it's being run in the press for people to read and digest and accept. Yeah. I know that there was a science reporter for the New York Times who stopped writing about these issues because he had a family member identifying as trans and he felt it would be really hard for him to do anything objective. So it's the right thing to do. Yeah. He took an ethical, quite yeah. sensible decision. Definitely. So how did you start? I came to Toronto in 1975 to do a PhD in developmental psychology at the University of Toronto. I had a master's degree in clinical psychology from the States but I wanted to be more researchy, but I also wanted to continue having clinical involvement. When I was still in Chicago, I had stumbled across Richard Green's 1974 book, Sexual Identity Conflict in Children and Adults, and it seemed pretty interesting to me So I stumbled across it when I was like 23. I had no idea what I was reading about, really. I had done my master's thesis on gender role development in children from a kind of cognitive perspective. So I was interested in weird topics back then. So I had read Green's book. It seemed interesting. Um, he had a nice beard, came to Toronto, and I knew about the Clark Institute of Psychiatry because I'd visited Toronto. And the Clark Institute of Psychiatry is very, it's part of the University of Toronto's physical grounds in a way, and there's a very close connection. By sheer coincidence, shortly after I came to Toronto, I saw a posting that Sue Bradley was doing a rounds in child psychiatry where she was going to talk about Richard Green's book. So I went to it, and I have no memory of anything that was discussed back then. But then I met with Sue Bradley. She had just started the gender clinic for children and adolescents at the Clark Institute, and I joined her team. How did her clinic get started. So there was the adult gender identity clinic at the Clark Institute that Ray was part of for many years that had been established in 1969 at the request of the Ontario Ministry of Health, where they wanted 
a psychiatrist to decide if somebody might be appropriate for sex reassignment surgery. So that's how the Adult Gender Identity Clinic got started in 1969. So a few years later, that clinic started to get a few referrals of children or adolescents. Of course, adult psychiatrists have known nothing about children and adolescents. So they made a call down to the child program and, hey, would anybody like to see these kids? And the way the program was organized at the time was around a particular psychiatrist who would have a resident and maybe psychology interns, a social worker. So Sue Bradley said, sure, I'll start to see them. So it was nothing like well planned out. It just... and. So there were a bunch of us, like circa 1975, Sue, psychiatry resident. There were four graduate students in psychology, me being one of them. And from the beginning, very big, we wanted it to be research-oriented. Clark Institute of Psychiatry at the time was the only freestanding mental health institution in Canada where one of its mandates was to do research. Though in the clinical programs back then, actually not that many people were doing research. So we cobbled together an assessment protocol, which we began to use almost from the very beginning, which kind of impressed people at the time because very few people were doing research in the child program. So it snowballed from there. And... We started to get more and more referrals. We started to give presentations. In terms of the field itself, there was there were very few people doing anything regarding children and adolescents with gender identity issues. So I would say we were actually... Richard Green and Robert Stoller had a gender clinic at UCLA, although it was more, I think unofficial. John Money at Hopkins, kids. There weren't that many people doing it. So I think we were, I wrote something about this because somebody claimed they were the first in North America. So I had to like push back on that. We were close to the first. Things gradually evolved. I was well known enough by the mid 80s to be a member of the DSM-3R work group. And this is, of course, <clears throat> the the categorizations of mental disorders, mm. which used to include homosexuality yeah, and the like. Um, and there was pressure, wasn't there, from quite early on that transsexuality was removed from the DSM. Is that right? So transsexualism and gender identity disorder of childhood made it into DSM-3 in 1980, which, of course, was the big change in how psychiatry was doing the DSMs, right? It became much more descriptive, less psychoanalytic, so it was a big takeover, right? Now, as I've said in some recent talks, when DSM-3 came around, you wanted to be inside the tent, yeah. not outside the tent to make a name for yourself, to get grants, to get published. Now, some people said that transsexualism 
was put into the DSM-3 as a backdoor maneuver to replace homosexuality. I don't agree with that at all. I actually wrote a paper explaining why I didn't think that was the case. But I would say that back in the day, the early criticisms of the diagnosis for children was a, well, you're just trying to prevent homosexuality, which a lot of clinicians were, Yeah, who saw these kids just like they wanted to prevent later transsexualism. When our clinic wrote our first paper back in 1978, we did point out that although a lot of parents might, when they bring their little kid in, say one of their goals is to prevent their kid from being gay or homosexual, we would not endorse that as a therapeutic goal. And over the years, sometimes parents would say to me, I know you can't say that. I know you can't yeah. say that's your goal, but would you straighten my kid out anyways? Yeah. And then the other criticism was, well, you're pathologizing kids because they're gender nonconforming. And that has been a source of ongoing debate. Although one of the things I have said in defense is that from the DSM-3 onwards, in the section on differential diagnosis, it's always said that gender nonconformity per se is not sufficient to make a diagnosis, mm -hmm. that we're really talking about kids who are distressed by their gender. So I think in DSM-3, it talked about sissies and tomboys. You don't diagnose sissy behavior per se. But nonetheless, if you look at the criteria for children, a lot of the indicators do pertain to surface expression of gender-related behavior. And that's where I think it gets more interesting in terms of if you believe that gender identity is something that's phenomenological and subjective, and it's in part socially constructed by observing how, quote, boys and girls behave in a particular culture, it's not surprising that the kinds of behaviors in kids with gender dysphoria are more typical of the other gender. It's only recently, by the way, that it's finally dawned on me that there are some people who don't be believe in the whole concept of gender identity. It's taken me a while to grasp that. I think I first started to realize this when I was giving a talk out in Vancouver a few years ago that Megan Murphy had organized. But Amy Hamm recently called gender identity metaphysical nonsense. I like that. I'm going to have to quote her on that. Yes. And obviously, feminists will refer to gender identity as sex stereotypes or the pressure to behave in gender-conforming ways. And obviously, the important thing for us is that we see gender as separate from sex, but interrelated. Right, but I feel like, if I'm understanding it 
gender critical theorists slash feminists, like somebody like Megan Murphy would say, she doesn't have a gender identity. She would say, I'm a woman, I'm a female. What I do has no bearing on that. And some people say, I don't feel like a woman. I am a woman, Mm. right? And that's very interesting clinically. I'll give you an example. Like I'm seeing a kid now. He's a late childhood kid who's socially transitioned before I saw him or her now. And it started out, kid is very intelligent, started out the kid realized that they didn't have a lot in common with other boys, like not liking sports or rough and tumble play, or that boys were mean, whereas girls were more gentle and nice. And so initially he said, well, maybe I'm gender nonconforming or maybe I'm non-binary. He wasn't saying initially, I want to be a girl, but it was more like, I have more in common with girls. And so therefore he enjoyed playing more with girls. But because he's so smart, he actually didn't get along with any kids because the things he's interested in is way over everybody's head. But then some educational video was sent home by the school for all kids. And the kid watches it and goes, oh, maybe I'm trans. And so this kid now says, not that I feel like a girl or I want to be a girl. I am a girl. Right. And I've been very interested over the years in does, what does a little kid mean when they say, I am, when they were... And this kid knows that he was born male, Although, and he knows that males and females have different bodies, but I don't like to talk about that, the Mm -hmm. kid says. But, so I feel like my most recent conceptualization is that the kid is condensing all of these statements and has graduated to, I am a girl along the lines of, well, I like to do everything that girls do, so that must mean I'm a girl. Where I think it's going to get tricky is, well, you may feel very strongly that you have lots in common with girls, but what you don't have in common is the same body. Mm-hmm. And so is there going to be a collision course once the kid hits puberty? And in fact, had he been, had he not been shown the video, would he have perhaps been able to speak with someone very open-minded at the school who would say you don't have to do rough and tumble just because you're a boy you can have all girl friends even though you're a boy some boys are mean and you don't have to conform to those sex stereotypes right would that have helped him live happily well it's like the lisa selen davis argument right in her book tomboy right which she goes on and on about So I had this, and it's a great question. So because this kid is so smart, we talked about bell distributions, bell curves, right? And now like, well, 
you may have certain traits that girls have as well, and you may have a lot of traits that other boys don't have, but it doesn't mean you have to be a girl. And he totally got it, and he started to draw like these histograms where, you know, the measure was how mean the kid is. Right. Meanness. And so, you know, there was a boy up here who was really mean, and then a lot of boys aren't mean, and most of the girls. But I feel like a lot of kids intellectually get it. It certainly is the case with a lot of the males I see in adolescence, and some of the females, like, who says you just because blah, blah, blah. They get it intellectually, but emotionally, I think it's much trickier. And, but I feel like with this kid, he's just gradually slid into it. One parent is more into it than the other, and I think that makes it tricky. And has the school's perspective on this, which is that you can choose your gender and that this is an option? Do you think that has had... I think one one big change over the last number of years, which we did not have to factor into the equation, is the school environment right. where... You know, with the older kids, some schools do things behind the backs of parents. Which is a big problem at home at the moment where some kids are being allowed, if not encouraged, to socially transition without their parents' knowledge, let alone permission. They're calling them opposite-sex names. They're allowing them to wear the opposite-sex uniform, different programs. That that happens here too, and... um, I think it's clinically irresponsible to be making those decisions without involving parents. The counter-argument would be, well, there are kids who say that it's not safe at home for anybody to know, to which I would say, well, then the school should call child protection exactly. and let child protection sort it out. But yeah, it's a complicating factor. And there, there was that Canadian mom... A number of years ago, Pamela Buffoni, I don't know if that's how you pronounce her last name, but her six-year-old comes home and the mom, the teacher said there are no such things as boys or girls. I'm confused. I thought I was a girl. Yeah. So definitely it's an additional complication these days. And some parents worry that if they don't immediately affirm so to speak, somebody at the school will call child protection on the parents. And, of course, the weaponizing of suicide likelihood and the mythology around this, which has translated into a, would you rather have a A dead son or a trans daughter? Have a dead kid or a trans kid. Yeah, it's one of the propaganda lines. A couple of years ago, I was speaking to a parent where she came across a group that was being led by a mom who had a trans kid. And the mother said to me that this other mother said, well, if you don't transition your kid today, 
there's an 80% chance your kid will kill themselves. Now, let's say that this other mother actually said that. Well, that's a pretty scary fact. But let's just say that's what the mother heard. So that would be pretty terrifying. Yes. And so she did. She transitioned her kid and then said, I probably shouldn't have done that. But yeah, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And how did the ideology develop in this way to Mm. the point of where the schools were captured and clinicians that are supposed to deal in scientific fact were largely captured? Well, I think one could argue that the whole idea of, let's say, the gender-affirming approach sort of piggybacked onto the gay-affirming approach because, in some respects, the clinical advocates of gay-affirming therapy overlap with clinicians who wound up in the gender dysphoria field part of wanting to depathologize transgender identities because the gender affirming types of course would be more than happy for gender dysphoria not to be a mental disorder in the DSM but they know that if it's not in the DSM why would any insurance company pay for treatment now the ICD removed the diagnosis from their mental and behavioral disorders chapter and invented a new chapter called Conditions Related to Sexual Health. So you have gender incongruence in there along with sexual dysfunctions, which also got moved out of the mental and behavioral disorders section of the ICD. Now, an interesting question would be, um, let's say, in Europe, which relies on the ICD, are insurance companies going to reimburse for gender incongruence treatment now that it's no longer considered a mental disorder? It's just a condition related to sexual health? So far, I haven't heard anything. In the States, because they still rely on the DSM, It hasn't become an issue yet. But the activists speak out of both sides of their mouth. It shouldn't be a mental disorder. But we need it in there because it's an urgent medical condition that requires treatment, and therefore insurance comes in. It's not a mental disorder, but we will kill ourselves if we can't get the correct treatment. I know there are some clinicians in the States who use the ICD to get reimbursed and they don't give a gender dysphoria diagnosis. They bill for endocrine disorder unspecified in the ICD, and they'll do that with five-year-olds as well as adolescents. The argument being that there's some sort of disorder that you are literally trapped in the wrong body with the wrong hormones going around your bloodstream. Now, if you look in the ICD... What is the definition of an unspecified endocrine disorder? There is none. That's all it says. It'll just say none of the many other endocrine conditions in the ICD 
the criteria are not met for any of the other ones. So it's made up. Which is what, again, begs the question, how has this group of activists, many Mm. of whom are not transgender, but some of whom are, have had such success in capturing the institutions that have capitulated to them when lesbians and gay men, for example, have never, well, have never actually attempted to do that, but would never have had that success. Why this group? Well, okay, let's play with that for a little bit. We could argue that, in fact, over the years, there have been these amazing advances in gay rights. So in the States, you know, in Canada, you can get legally married now, can adopt. There are all of these anti-discrimination laws in place. And in fact, some cynics say, well, the gay activists have nothing to be active about anymore, at least in Western culture, of course, not Africa. So they need a new cause. And what's is it not ironic that the major LG organizations in the States, like Human Rights or GLAD or this, that, and the other, for gay people are not, it's all about trans. Um, one of my early critics, I... Shannon Minter, who is, is a lawyer, lesbian, wrote about gender stuff back in like the 90s, maybe early 2000s. And she was like one of the lead lawyers for one of the big lesbian rights groups. She's now a man. Right. She actually was giving testimony a number of weeks ago, I think around the whole issue of trans women and women's sports. And Shannon is now a very masculine looking person, male balding, beard. So Shannon defected and crossed the line. Except for their argument is that it is all one big community. Mm. The LGBTQ spirit plus That includes everyone, including straight men with paraphilia. Mm. So she would just see herself as one part of the big, happy, queer family. And that's not how... Well, she migrated from L to T. She did, but what they say is that it is all one big, happy family. And that has what's caused so much dissent amongst many lesbians who say, we're same-sex attracted. We want to be able to legally and safely hold our own events. Yeah. We don't want to be bothered by men on dating apps, claiming right. to be lesbians. Well, I'm reading right now Page Boy. Yeah. Which is, it's about halfway through it. It's pretty moving. There's an unhappy trans person if ever I've seen one. Elliot Page, yeah? So, Elliot Page was, as a lesbian, married to a woman. That ended. Haven't gotten to the part in the book where maybe Elliot Page talks about it. but And I have a colleague who actually did her PhD on relationships where one of the partners transitioned and things usually didn't work out. Have you ever read any Nicola Brown's papers yes. on this? Yes. Yeah, pretty interesting. Because, yeah. of course, Elliot Page's... Now, her wife would have been required 
to shift her identity to heterosexual. Yeah. If we're buying this stuff and if we're going down that And wanting to be penetrated with a dildo. Sure. And that would be an entirely different sexual orientation and label. Yeah. And we saw it play out in the, I don't know if you've seen the series, Transparent. I never watched it carefully, but... Same happened. It's the kind of, well, you're a lesbian now. Oh, mum's a lesbian now. Well, actually, mum isn't a lesbian now. Right. This isn't her that's changed. And it's obviously, if you're going to buy into the fantasy, everybody has to buy into it. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah, certainly clinically, I've had some experience where a father has transitioned and has wanted the wife to join him, now her, in a lesbian partnership. I say usually it doesn't work out. And I think that where Ray probably talked to you about this today a little bit, but you know, my clinical experience is that the vast majority of, I'll make global statement, the vast majority of males who have autogynephilia are not activists. They're not narcissistically toxic and just want to get on with their lives. The ones who are toxic are the ones who have personality disorders. And they're the ones who are more likely than not to wind up in the media. And for narcissistic reasons, are always testing the limits about what they can get away with, so to speak. So, for example, just no empathic understanding about why a lot of women would be uncomfortable with somebody born male being in working at a rape crisis center. Right. And I think that it's unfortunate that it's such a political issue. And I don't think politicians understand that you're talking about a subgroup of people who very likely have personality disorders and are behaving in ways that are provocative. Yes. And the the stories about trans women shifting to competing in women's sports. It's so there's a new story in the states from some little college, right, where mm-hmm. somebody born male was on the male swimming team mm-hmm. and wasn't particularly good and now in their last year of college is on the women's team and is breaking all the records who can possibly think that's fair it's baffling it's the most straightforward issue of all of them because most people don't care about women in prison because they're unlikely to know someone in prison or because they'll judge them adversely and a lot of people just want to be they think they're being kind by saying we've got to use correct pronouns etc yeah. But it's, there's such a huge amount of scientific evidence that the general public actually does understand because we understand about lung capacity and muscle mass and physical strength and the differences that testosterone make to the body. You don't have to be a feminist or not to understand how unfair this is. The journal, the editor of, we published a paper a number of years ago where this guy presented data 
speed times in long distance racing, right? And the sex difference is amazing. And so if you took somebody like, you know, where, you know, who's a special case because someone mm-hmm. has a DSD, but if you plotted her time, if she was on the male team, she would not be in first place. Right. In fact, I think, so I may be misremembering it, but I think when he plotted her times, she only would have beaten out two guys who both were injured as they were running. Yeah. But, you know, maybe I got that part wrong, but the sex difference on average is amazing. There was a recent somebody decided not to do snicker or something, which I think is like a form of billiards because all of a sudden she was going to have to compete against a trans male. Maybe we're talking about sex difference in spatial ability too. That's right. And it's not... And you never hear it. It's never an issue the other way. No, of course not. Right? And it's never an issue that trans men, so females who transition to male, want to go into a male prison. Right. Yeah. So how on earth do they wield so much power? It's incredible the way that people curtail to these threats that that they are so influential and leave bosses of big organizations quaking in their boots. Yeah, well, I guess one could argue it's under a much broader tent of DEI and that it's very hard to contest something that on the surface seems very progressive where it's actually way more complicated Mm. and so dei is what diversity equity and inclusivity yeah you have a different acronym to us (laughs) and yeah the general kind of black lives matter the land rights land acknowledgement stuff that is just now completely bonkers here in canada even indigenous people are saying this stuff is just virtue signaling in the extreme. Yeah. Cynics would say it's transient liberal guilt. And how does the average student even process what it's all about? And does it have any correlation with anything that's meaningful? And, well, my journal, we had a little section on cancel culture at the beginning of this year. And one of the contributors to it talked about how in her own situation behind closed doors her bosses were all supportive of her Mm -hmm. but they weren't willing to say anything publicly because as she put it they feared reputational damage so until people stand up and push back a little bit the situation will remain the way it is and, of course, the silent majority are afraid to say anything. Because they've seen what happens to the likes of you and me and others. And But speaking of pushing back, after you were ceremoniously fired yeah. and the report was then uh, added it was to the intranet, the internet, so that everybody could read it, what did you do? Did you decide immediately, this is outrageous, I'm going to fight back? Oh, I immediately was meeting with my lawyer. I had a, you know, I'd met with him well in advance of the execution to see if he would 
take my case. Because you knew what was coming. Yeah, what might be coming, yeah. So, yeah, we pretty quickly after I filed three lawsuits, one against the University of Toronto student newspaper, one against the Toronto Star newspaper, and then the big one against CAMH, and I settled with all three. The University of Toronto money plus a public apology, Toronto Star money, and a statement on their website that the issue had been resolved, <laughs> and then the CAMH eventually. And the reason they took it down after a month and a half or so from their website was because of the single article. Because they realized, I think they realized, they were going to be in trouble because he so beautifully could show that the person who said I said, made the hairy little vermin comment, looked at an array of pictures and said, oh, this is the one who said it, not Dr. Zucker. So that was beautiful. Now, my administrative bosses, when they saw that comment in the review, could have easily said, well, this sounds weird because the child and adolescent clinic never has anything to do with recommending surgery. That's done in the adult clinic. There's something wrong here. Right. Let's get the person's name. Let's get the person's medical record number at CAMH. Let's see if this person ever saw Dr. Zucker. Due diligence, in other words. Fact check. Yeah. When my lawyer crossman uh my bosses you know he asked him did you ever think of doing that no do you think you should have no very dismissive should you have asked ken like did you ever see somebody no never thought of now of course what he was really thinking who knows but but certainly when they read a draft as they were writing this the bosses could have said this particular comment seems suspect yeah and then what happened did you get contacted by lots of people saying this is outrageous what happened to you i had a huge network of support and in fact one of the things ray and a couple of other close colleagues did one of those petitions which had hundreds of signatures critiquing the external review. I don't remember the details, but that went online and there were hundreds and hundreds of people who signed it. I told my boss, at the publisher of Springer of my journal, this is what's happened to me. And she didn't say to me, well, maybe it'd be better if you stepped down. So I, and I had a lot of support. So I think I, there's a huge network of people who like me, and there's another network. So speaking of which, the event that we all saw online, on YouTube, on Twitter and the like, we, the infamous Zuckoff. So my last talk right before COVID was at McGill in January of 2020, where there were people who wanted me cancelled, but the guy who invited me, Samuel Vessier, he didn't back down and 
had enough support from his chair that I gave the talk and there was no problem, although they certainly did have an escape plan for me. But what happened at U.S. Path was I was in two symposia. And at the beginning of the first symposium, maybe 20 people out of a couple of hundred were trying to shut it down. And eventually a lot of people in the audience said, we want to hear what he has to say. So they left in a huff. And what I was talking about in that talk was didn't even have anything to do with therapy. It was more just talking about the follow-up studies. The next day, I was supposed to be in a symposium that was going to talk about different therapeutic approaches, but U.S. Path canceled it because they said they were afraid that there would be violence. See, this is what they do. They justify canceling something because they've caved into the bullies by saying they can't guarantee your safety. Right. They do it to us all the time. Yeah, so that one got cancelled. And then I have a vague memory of this, but WPATH at some point after issued some kind of statement without naming names, but essentially accusing somebody of having given a talk that was inconsistent with WPATH's beliefs. Oh, yeah. Values, they usually say. And what I found bizarre about the statement they issued was, number one, the officers who signed it weren't even at my talk. Number two, what I talked about had nothing at all to do with what they said Mm -hmm. the sin had been. And at one point I actually asked one of the officers at a meeting, I said, I can't believe you signed that because it was so inaccurate. And he said, oh, I didn't even know they had signed my name on it. Now, some people pushed back who were actually at the talk and they took the statement down from their website. But yeah, people, it scares people, right? That's the idea. If I go to like, an EPATH meeting, the European variant of WPATH or WPATH. Haven't been to WPATH in a while, but certainly people in the hallway will say, I share a lot of your views, but to say that publicly is risky. I have no respect for that. Well, people, people. say, I got to pay my mortgage. People say that to me all the time. Yeah. I used to say, Thank you for contacting me. I appreciate it and now I tell them to fuck off because there are those that cannot possibly take the risk of being fired from their low paid job and lose their rented accommodation and have their kids in danger we know they exist Yeah. but I'm talking about professionals Mm -hmm. who have a home who have a partner who have security and who know that we are they know they can see the picture they can see the writing on the wall Yeah. and I now think of it as cowardice. They're making a choice, and it's a coward's choice. Because, of course, we wouldn't be in this state now if more people spoke out. And it's how we've been able to push back on so-called Turf Island, Mm. where we're saying we're not having it. We're taking legal cases. We're speaking out even if you come after us and call us Nazis and bigots. We are not having 
a dozen women being who were in the public eye, me included, being regularly abused and defamed and threatened. Right. And I just think that's the right way to go about. We we have to speak out. Well, what was the name of Eric Fromm's book in the late 50s oh, yeah. where he said in times of incredible instability people will choose security over anything else yeah but not everybody chooses that path and when it's right in your face and colleagues and friends close to home are being targeted in this way you know it could be you next and so it's actually it makes no sense because they're not going to be protected by their silence because you don't need to do anything now to be labeled as transphobic Nazi bigot it really is it goes from naught to ten doesn't it mm-hmm. within seconds you just have to say not quite the right thing well look what's happening apologize. right now in relation to the Middle East that's right that's exactly the analogy where you say the wrong thing or you're virtue signaling and you understand nothing about it but you've chosen a side it's the side that will get you the least trouble yeah yeah well you're clearly a brave one. Well, I mean, I'm a feminist, so I've, I've always been unpopular. But the difference is that I see this as something that will, if we don't stand up against it, have an effect on every single one of our institutions and traditions and cultures that will all be the poorer for it, including trans people. I remember a few years ago, one of my former students was teaching a sessional course at one of the universities in Toronto on child and adolescent psychopathology. And I said, so are you going to do a lecture on gender dysphoria? She said, no, she was too afraid to, even though she's published with me. She was afraid. I hope you found that really interesting. I certainly did. And although... Ken Zucker and I probably disagree on at least 50% in total of the issues that we were discussing. In other words, gender identity, dysphoria, transsexuality and the like. I could have spoken to him for way longer. But I had to actually leave to get to another interview to speak with a colleague, a friend of his, who lives in the same neighbourhood. Until next time.